Hello, and welcome to Pan Am, the podcast that explores some of Paris's underground stories. Today, come with me as you go and visit the most rock and roll couple in the graveyard. I've come here to Père Lachaise, which is the biggest cemetery by far in Paris. When you get out from the metro, you see people selling maps, and I would definitely advise you to get one or download one, as the cemetery is over a hundred acres and chock-a-block with graves. It's full of celebrities like Jim Morrison, Oscar Wilde, Marcel Proust, Edith Piaf, Chopin, to name but a few, and lots of just really unusual graves that people like to visit, even if they don't necessarily know the person, such as Victor Noir with his shiny trouser bowl or George Rodenbach, who's trying to escape from his tomb. Some might even come here to visit the grave of the tomb that's no longer here, that of little Adelaide de Villeneuve. She was the first recorded person to be buried here at Pelleches on the 4th of June, 1804, and it's thought that she's next to her brother um, Adolf Victor in the 42nd Division. Although there's no tomb there, her body should still be there, and flowers can sometimes still be seen on this spot. The cemetery gets its name Père Lachaise, or Father the Chair, from Louis XIV's confessor. The land belonged to the Jesuits, but after the revolution became the property of the state and was eventually opened in 1804 under Napoleon as a non-denominational graveyard. Paris needed more space for their dead, and this, as well as a few other locations, all of which were outside of the city at the time, were chosen. Originally called the East Cemetery, Père Lachaise is located in what is now the 20th arrondissement in the northeast of Paris. But in 1804, it was a poor, run-down, insalubrious and dangerous area, full of shady goings-on and criminal activity. Not at all the kind of place that would attract the most important and fabulous people to be laid to rest. But today, to be buried at Père Lachaise, you must take out a lease, which, if not renewed, means you'll be moved to make space for the next paying customer. You can get a lease for perpetuity, 50 years, 30 years, or for a bargain, 10 years. There is, however, a waiting list. People are just dying to get in. So what changed the fortune of this once unattractive graveyard? Essentially, a marketing campaign. It was decided to relocate some famous people in an effort to try and improve the image of the cemetery and attract a better class of dead person. I'm standing in front of the grave of Molière. It's an impressive tomb for the much-loved playwright, especially when you consider that he'd originally been given a rather hasty and illicit burial. Actors in the 17th century were not allowed to have Christian funerals unless they renounced their wicked trade. Poor Molière died before a priest arrived at his deathbed, and in a terrible stroke of irony, he had just finished a performance of the Malade Imaginaire, the imaginary invalid or hypochondriac in English. It was only due to the intervening of Louis XIV himself that Molière was able to be buried in a church at all. Fellow actors who did not renounce their profession could look forward to being buried in common, unmarked pits. Nonetheless, despite the Sun King's power, there was to be no ceremony, and it had to be carried out in the dead of night. Following the revolution, Molière's body was moved initially to the Museum of French Monuments before being brought here to Père Lachaise. But because of this, there are some who doubt whether the remains are indeed those of Molière's at all. Regardless of this, his legacy lives on, and this is a popular tomb. 
His plays are still read and performed today, and he's even given actors, who are already a superstitious lot, yet another worry. During his final performance, he was wearing green, and so to this very day, it's considered very unlucky for actors to do so. Molière was not the only person transferred to Bellechaise. Just next to him is Jean de La Fontaine, the famous writer and poet, who's most known for his fables. He was also relocated. However, a seeming clerical error sent people to the wrong address in order to look for him. Apparently, he was buried in the old Saint Innocent Cemetery, not, as was written, the Saint-Joseph. So it could be that La Fontaine's remains actually found their way to the catacombs, to be stacked up with so many others after the Saint Innocent Cemetery was condemned, and the grand tomb before me, just like Molière's, does not contain his body. Sadly, for both Molière and La Fontaine, all this grave hopping was in vain, or at least in terms of bringing people to Père Lachaise. So who was it that successfully managed to transform the cemetery and attract the stars? Come with me to find out. I'm standing in front of the tomb of Abelard and Eloise, the famous 12th century lovers. It was by moving their tomb here in 1817 that forever transformed the fate of Père Lachaise. Their love story, though they'd both been dead for hundreds of years, lived on through their letters which they'd written to each other and captured the hearts and imaginations of Parisians, including that of the Empress Josephine. Today their tomb is a little hidden away, a little forgotten maybe, but it's nonetheless a beautiful piece of neo-Gothic art. Lenoir, who created it, used a preserved effigy of Abelard and a reconstructed one of Eloise, which he placed on top of their tomb, and surrounded it with a chapel made using various pieces from medieval religious buildings. So what was their story that so enthralled Parisians and brought unrequited lovers in the 19th century to their graveside, who would leave love letters in the hope that they could offer them help from beyond the grave? I've come here to number 9, Quai aux Fleurs, where a plaque tells us that this building, rebuilt in 1849, was the original address of Abelard and Eloise. So who exactly were they? Pierre Abelard was a brilliant 12th century scholar. By all accounts, dashing, good-looking, songwriting, and all-round bad boy philosopher and teacher. He was not afraid to say what he thought and walk his own path. Eloise was no slouch herself, and she was generally praised as being talented and a gifted student. They meet around 1116. She needs a capable teacher to stimulate and mould her already formidable intellectual curiosity, and is taken on as a live-in tutor by Eloise's uncle Fulbert. But their intellectual pursuits are soon forgotten, as learning turns to lust. Abelard writes... It was utterly boring for me to have to go to school and wearisome to remain there and to spend my days on study when my nights were sleepless with lovemaking. Mm. Inevitably, Eloise became pregnant, although to be honest, it seems that if people were good Christians in the medieval period, getting pregnant was quite a feat. Before any lovemaking, couples, and by that I do mean married couples, still needed to ask themselves the following questions. Is it Sunday, Saturday, Wednesday, Friday, a feast day, a fast day, Easter week, Lent, Advent, Whitsun week, is your wife pregnant, nursing, menstruating, is it daylight, are you naked, are you in church? If the answer was no to all of these, then it was permissible to have sex, but only once and in the missionary position, and of course, enjoyment was strictly forbidden. 
But since Abelard and Eloise were not married, maybe they thought it did not apply. Anyway, Abelard takes the pregnant Eloise to Brittany and to his sister to have the baby, leaving Uncle Fulbert, who has by now discovered the affair, fuming in Paris. A word about the baby. Born in 1118, they decide to call him Astrolabe, an unusual name at the time, and indeed now. However, in the 12th century, only religious names were considered acceptable. Then again, Abelard and Eloise were not ones to care what others thought. An astrolabe is a medieval scientific instrument. It's used to identify and measure the stars and planet, and literally means star taker. What seems a little cruel with the choice of this name, well, I mean, apart from dinner parties, is that it implies a sort of aspirationalness. Our astrolabe, the being that shall be our compass, predict the movement of the planets. It implies they cared and wanted this baby and were not going to abandon him to the taunts of his classmates, but love him and bring him up in a household of books and debating around the dinner table. Maybe that's what they planned to do, but as it turned out, they did abandon him. In fact, Astrolab disappears practically completely never heard of again. There's little known about his life and even less of his death, the exact date and location being unknown. Abla wrote him a poem and once refers to him as his poor little chap, continuing Astrolab, my son, the delight of your father's life. But not much actual fathering seems to have taken place. Eloise was not much better. In all the years of their correspondence, Astrolab rarely, practically never, features. Of course, you cannot judge medieval people by modern standards, but it does seem quite cold. Although, maybe he was better off, who can say? Abelard thinks that he and Eloise should marry, even though this would be suicide for his career. Eloise disagrees, writing passionately, saying she sees no need for them to get married, and that she would rather be his mistress or his whore than his wife. But he insists, and so they do, but keep it secret. I've come here to the Rue Ursin on the Inde de la Cité. It's not far from Notre Dame, and here is hidden the little chapel of Saint Agnès. Sadly, we cannot visit as it's on private property, but it's thought that it was here in one of Paris's oldest churches that the couple married. Unfortunately, as with memorable love stories, it was not a long or happy one. Fulbert, still fuming, can take it no longer and seeks revenge. He sends a group of thugs to teach Ablar a lesson he would not forget. In the dead of night, they break into his home and remove, well, in the words of Abelard, the parts of my body whereby I had committed the wrong of which they complained, and so generously, if somewhat gruesomely, bestowed the French language with a new term for castration, to Abelard someone. Medieval Paris may not have had Twitter, but news of the terrible story spread like wildfire, and soon everyone seemed to know. I suffered more from their sympathy than from the pain of my wound and felt the misery of my mutilation less than my shame and humiliation, complained Abelard. Whether it was a result of the shame or the pain or the fact that he could no longer be a real man to his loving wife, Abelard decided to become a monk and holds himself up in a monastery for the rest of his days. Eloise, perhaps not with much choice left, becomes a nun, but they keep in touch with each other writing often and in beautiful and elegant Latin. You can still read those letters now, thankfully in translation, and they show just how passionate, daring and devoted to each other they continue to be, even though they were apart. Eloise makes it clear that she loved him more than she loved even God, incredibly dangerous talk at the time. It does seem a shame that today no one sends love letters that can be kept and cherished forever.
So Abla and Eloise, who were famous in their own time, were a little bit like modern celebrities. They fueled gossip with their private lives, gave their offspring an egregious name, and refused to conform. 600 years after their death, they were still able to inspire people to follow and emulate them. 900 years after their death, and we're still thinking about them and their story. So in my opinion, they are by far the most rock and roll people in the graveyard. Thank you so much for listening to this episode and to everyone that has downloaded the first two podcasts already and given me such kind and lovely feedback, especially all the Lepsters. It has been amazing reading your comments. And as ever, I'm open to your thoughts, suggestions and questions. For pictures and those kinds of things, then do check out my website, which is panampodcast.com. And I'm also on all the usual social media stuff like Twitter, Facebook and Instagram. But if you don't want to miss any episodes, then do subscribe in iTunes or wherever it is that you get your podcasts. The music you hear at the beginning and end is from The Owl. I've put a link to her work in the show notes. That's it for now, so take care of yourselves. Bye-bye.